Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail, it's being called a silent pandemic. The young people in my family and in the community are worried about not only failing the next couple of months, but failing life. We can't have a world in which we're doubling the rates of mental well-being problems and concerns. And we'd better ask the right questions, what's going on? One of our top scientists, Sir Peter Gluckman, is among those speaking out about alarming levels of mental distress in young people. We're not talking here necessarily about classic psychiatric illness of depression or severe anxiety. We're talking about emotional disturbances sufficient to interfere with the, the young person optimally developing mm. through life with long-term consequences to employment, to learning, to relationship building, uh, to being satisfied with their life. And tens of thousands are affected. There's about 800,000 young people between 12 and 24 in New Zealand, and one-fifth of all New Zealanders will experience a mental health challenge at any one time. So one-fifth of 800,000 is 160,000. So wow. I don't think we have all of the support that 160,000 young people might need yet. But where is the help? There's never going to be enough money in health and we have this discussion a lot and there's never going to be enough money in mental health and you can say to people who are in distress or who have family members in distress, you know, we are fixing the system, it's going to take time but that, that doesn't help them in that moment. We look at the state of mental health services with a spotlight on youth and hear what the politicians are saying. My full name is Josiah Tuala Mali'i. I'm 25. You may have seen um, some of the stuff around my own lived experience of depression and um, my family and community really helped me work through that so that then I could help others. So is that what led you to these various organisations, that you had your own depression, you were a young student, you were on a $20,000 law scholarship, is that right? <laughs> yep, that's right. Tell me about it. Yeah, I thought that law was going to be for me, but sort of a couple of years in, I started to not be able to explain why I was feeling sad. And then that kind of then drifted into my study and not necessarily being able to do as well as I had hoped and then starting to lose passion for what I was studying um, and then some other challenges going on around a life around me. And then, um, yeah, then I started to see a psychologist and um, we started to talk through what I was feeling and and she, um, Andrea's her name, amazing person, said... What you're feeling is like what a lot of people feel. Um, and a little bit earlier on, I, I sort of had discovered my Samoan identity as someone who's sort of born here and not able to speak Samoan. Uh, and so that was another kind of defining moment a bit earlier when I was 14. And so that was kind of the first foray into well-being, like cultural mm. well-being, and then specifically in mental well-being um, and be a youth voice as long as, as well as a voice for everyone else. So um, after that, then I went back and finished my degree. So I finished end of last year. Did you? So oh, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and are, are you working in law now? No, I, um, I ended up changing when I went back. I, I ended up doing politics and history, and so I pretty much work in health governance now. But you're also a youth advisor to the Lancet Commission on Depression, which is a, am, is a sort yes. of an international collaboration. That's right, yes. So, yes. Can, I mean, these are these are big, big, beefy roles for a young person. <laughs> what do you tell them? What What are you hearing? Maybe if I can use a friend's words, my friend Dean, who, who does similar work to what I do, except he's quite a bit older than me, um, he talks about how 
there's the need for doctors and nurses, our clinical leaders, and then there's need for people with lived experience who can kind of describe what it was like going through those circumstances, that to, who can speak to the pain that someone else is feeling and can think through what someone else who might be experiencing support would be like. And then also the third area, there being cultural support. Josiah works with local and international health groups and government agencies. He's the youth voice on mental health, what he calls the lived experience. Part of his lived experience was having to wait weeks for help as a struggling student. And it's not just Josiah's story. If you've got no money and you're in the wrong part of the country, that's what it's like. Some people have better access and that would be because they can afford to go to a psychologist or psychotherapist or to pay for a a mental health professional and not have to be on a waiting list. When I was at uni, uh, I had to wait six weeks to see the first person I saw and that was three or four years ago now and the Greater Wellington region with the PICI model where they've connected up the different tertiary health providers that the universities and the politics they've got good access because they can offer lots of different types of support not just counsellors and and psychologists they can have people with lived experience to come and journey alongside you or to talk through your lived experience Um, so there's some places like yeah the Greater Wellington area where it's good Others, it's a lot too long way to go. Yeah, because six weeks is a heck of a long time to be waiting for the right kind of help if you're feeling very, very low. 100%. And who are we to tell someone who's, who, might be on, who might be thinking about suicide or um, feeling very, very lonely that we can't help you right now? The vibe that that sends to someone, you're not that important, um, or not important at the moment is, is really challenging when we're particularly when we're also encouraging people across the country reach out for help you know turn to someone when you're when you're experiencing distress that's those two things don't really join together well what's your understanding of certain places is there still that long wait yep um, I know like for young people in, in Southland and Northland it's much harder to get help because the geography and there's not as many uh, doctors and nurses and other mental health supporters who opt to go and work in rural New Zealand. So there's a big job we have to do to convince health supporters or, or peer supporters that living rural is also great. Mm. Um, and that's just one of the different... I'm a Samoan myself, and so, yeah, we've got a long way to go to have the, the Samoan and Pacific workforce we need. Um, I mean, Samoan's the third largest spoken language. We've got about 300,000 Samoans in New Zealand. And um, it's quite good at the moment. The Ministry of Health are about to roll out some Pacific mental health services across the country for the first time. But it's going to take a little bit of time for the community to get comfortable with them. So for a while anyway, increased needs going to show for a long while, especially with COVID outcomes as well. Yeah, Yeah. well, that's what I was going to ask you because I'm looking at some figures here about the numbers of people in distress. Since the nationwide lockdown began in March, Lifeline has seen a 25% increase in calls and texts from people in distress. Youthline has seen a 50% increase in texts from young people reaching out for support. What are you hearing? What are people saying, young people? The young people who are who in my family and in the community are worried about not only failing the next couple of months, but failing life because the grades that they are getting now are not going to set them up for the next steps. Um, they're worried that even though that there have been changes by the Ministry of Education and others to make success more achievable, they're not sure that that, that they can get there. Um, there's also 
Pacific young people in Māori and, and many others haven't had the choice but have had to go and work to support their families so that they can get by after after lockdown. And, and after the earthquakes, one of the things that I remember hearing quite strongly then, and I haven't heard yet, but I, I think we will start to hear, is children were worried going to school about their parents. And that was one of the first times I'd actually heard children not really being able to be kids. The Ministry of Youth Development did a lockdown survey and two-thirds of young people who, who participated in that reported having difficulty continuing in education. And so, yeah, we've got to get that support around their families, around them being able to achieve at school. So let's look at what that support is and the bigger picture of mental health. Newsroom's Laura Walters has been writing about what's happened since the groundbreaking He Ara Oranga. It was meant to be a once-in-a-generation opportunity to review and, and transform, I guess, the, the mental health system. The background to He Ara Oranga was that in the lead-up to the 2017 election, um, mental health became a really hot topic and a bit of a political football, actually. So there was a lot going on. Um, people were distress, they weren't able to access services and Labour picked up that ball and, and ran with it and they promised what the, the current you know, national government at the time wouldn't, which was a national inquiry. I think most people accepted that um, it was at the worst broken, at the best fractured. And so they waited 18 months for that report. It cost $6 million. There was further waiting for, for another six months to hear back from the government on what their response was going to be. And then in 2019, we had the coalition government's um, inaugural well-being budget, where they delivered this $1.9 billion spend on mental health, which was absolutely unprecedented. It includes a new universal frontline mental health service that's expected to help 325,000 people in five years' time. $40 million is going towards a suicide prevention strategy. There is also $200 million extra for new and existing mental health and addiction facilities. And that was to put the money behind delivering the recommendations of Her Ara Oranga. I want every mother, father, brother, sister or friend who has seen their nearest and dearest suffer to know that we have heard the call and we are answering it. Mental health is no longer on the periphery of our health system. It is front and centre. Hugely ambitious, a lot of money. Has much changed? I would say we haven't gone backwards. In, in the past few weeks um, with a colleague, Oliver Lewis, we've been talking to people to to try and answer that exact, exact question. You know, I've been covering mental health for, for quite a few years now, and what really struck me was that people were telling the same stories. What kind of things are people talking about still? So we're hearing a lot about overcrowding in emergency mental health services and in acute mental health services in clinics and hospitals. We're hearing about people who are feeling like they are reaching out for help and either not getting it or being pushed into the more acute part of the system where their case is escalated and they don't feel like that's the healthiest or most helpful thing for them. We're still hearing about um, the use of seclusion, restraint and compulsion at levels that are too high and that are 
possibly in breach and are in breach of UN conventions. We're hearing about staff that are feeling stressed and unsafe in their workplace and, and just a, a lack of staffing, a lack of services, a lack of help, a lack of funding. There's never going to be enough money in health and we have this discussion a lot and there's never going to be enough money in mental health and you can say to people who are in distress or who have family members in distress, you know, we are fixing the system, it's going to take time, but that that doesn't help them in that moment. And why is that, Laura? Why has it been so slow to roll out the services? On the one hand, we're talking about, you know, transformation. So, you know, we feel like we should have seen some change by now, but when you're trying to transform a system, it, it takes time, right? And you have to go right back to the base and back to those those drivers of mental ill health. So you're talking about, you know, poverty, about trauma, about colonisation, and you don't fix those quickly. So to put money into it and, and focus on it is one thing, but to actually fix those drivers will, will take a really long time. In, in the meantime, I guess there has been a real focus on just getting more services into into primary care with a big focus on youth and a big focus on, on Māori and on Pacifica. And there, that has been really slow and there's been an underspend and a lot of the, the talk around the reason for that being so slow has been to do with workforce constraints. So at the end of July, about $30 million had been spent out of the $455 million that was committed to to primary mental health services. So that's a really small percentage. We need an approach where people get given support and then more support as opposed to treatment and then other treatment. So support could be treatment, but support could be cultural support. It could be being able to access art therapy. From my experience, play the piano and I was, have been part of uni choirs and I enjoy the arts and creativity and, and my culture. And those are the things which help centre me, not medication. I'm not saying medication isn't useful. One-seventh of all New Zealanders use medication to, to help maintain their well-being, and that's so important. And a key bit for me, though, is are we able to offer everyone the access and choice to all the different types of supports? That's what I've been encouraging The Lancet about, yeah. And are we? Are we able to offer everyone equally as much support as they can get? Not yet. Not yet. We saw this come up in the, the recent leaders' debate discussion about suicide and about mental distress. We've got time for one more question. Uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, what will you do to work towards decreasing New Zealand's suicide rate? Of course, it's important to mention that not everyone who dies by suicide has suffered from mental health, but they will have suffered from some form of mental distress. When we've got suicide rates of the last time I checked was about 675. Mm -hmm. uh, that's twice the road toll. But the, all of the parties have really put a focus on this, especially um, in the COVID environment and in, as we you know, recover from COVID and, and people might be feeling some kind of anxiety or post-traumatic stress or a, a, you know, just a bit of a feeling of uncertainty. And so all of the parties have especially put a lot of focus on young people. We've got to go earlier and earlier with mental health support. 
both the, the Greens and the Nats and Labor have all talked about rolling out free counselling in schools. Um, and Labor has talked about expanding the, the mana ake programme. You know, I still remember last election um, coming down and hearing some of the stories from children here in Canterbury and affected by the earthquakes in Kaikoura. And we heard from the educators and parents that we needed mental health support in primary schools. And so with the DHB, we created Mana Ake and we have supported 5,000 children in schools right here in Canterbury. Which builds resilience, that builds positive um, mental well-being. So they saw that work really well and they said, actually, we can roll this out further. The sad reality is that we need that now across the country. We have to support our kids we have to help them with tools in cognitive behavioural therapy that are going to give them what they need in the really tough world they're going into to not just survive but to thrive. So there's a real focus on delivering these programmes and the support to young people in schools and in the community so that you can you know, address those issues at an earlier stage before it gets to the point where people are experiencing quite acute symptoms or, you know, extreme distress and they're working their way into the, the health system. And when we do that in our primary schools and we support it in our secondary schools, that is what will give us tough young adults who will survive the really anxious-making difficult times that we have in New Zealand. Thank you. So Judith Collins, is that a good plan? We, we believe that mental health is such an important issue that we should actually have a Minister for Mental Health. I think Nationals policy has been really interesting in mental health, and I think that a lot of that credit for, for their policy, which is a very strong policy, needs to go to Matt Ducey. We've got Matt Ducey, who's the MP here in, in Waimakariri, and Matt is a mental health uh, professional before he came to Parliament. He is someone who is focused on this area specifically, and he has a background working um, in the mental health sector. I'm sorry to say that Matt's actually had quite a lot of work to do in Parliament with mental health because, you know, Parliament is not immune to mental health issues, as we have seen. So he, he knows firsthand, has firsthand experience dealing with this. And the National Party said, this is a really important issue um, and we think that it deserves a standalone minister. So this minister wouldn't have a ministry behind them, but their job would be to pull together everyone else and work on you know, a, a mental health plan and, and have someone who's accountable and responsible for delivering services and delivering support and delivering on a vision or on a policy. So you know, this, this minister can maybe work with the education ministry, they'll work with the health ministry, with social welfare and, and housing, so they can bring together all of those different parts of government and be the, the one person that's really driving that response to mental health. Some other countries do have mental health ministers and it's such a significant issue and it will continue to be, especially in the wake of COVID, so why not um, mm. give mental so minister. You say that ACT has the most radical mental health and addiction proposal and is any of that targeted specifically to young people? They talk a lot about young people but the it's less that there's specific targeted policies and more that they see or ACT sees that by transforming the way that we commission um, mental health services 
that everyone will benefit. Their proposal is to basically slash the way we commission mental health services at the moment and create a, new, a brand new standalone commissioning agency. It's similar or comparable to ACC, I guess tailoring the services to them rather than giving the money to the Ministry of Health and the DHBs. I think the first thing I learned from the mental health and addictions inquiry is people want to be heard. And I don't know if I have if I have a strong sense that children and young people's voices are being heard in the COVID response and or generally being heard and how to come up with the solutions for for these problems that we're talking about. In health, we've got like chief consumer advisors, chief people with lived experience. We need like a child advisor for the whole government, and but more than just one. Josiah, when he's talking about services or help for, for young people, he talks more about the need for support and at various levels as well as treatment. He's saying that young people need to know that there's someone that they can go and talk to and not have to wait, you know, several weeks, say, to see a counsellor. And then cultural support, which he said was really helpful for him. Do the political parties recognise that? I, I would say that the Green Party and the National Party have articulated that quite well in very different ways in their policies. So the Green Party's mental health policy is very high level. They talk about the societal and social determinants of mental health and how we need a community-focused response and and how we have to um, address poverty and we have to address disconnection from culture and things like that, whereas the National Party policy is very specific but touches on the same points, which is, you know, we need to have um, a, you know, a grassroots community level response. That's that's where people can access support and help in the very first instance. So in dealing with that, they put forward a policy that says we should have mental health first aid training. So like we do with physical first aid, but for mental health so that people can, you know, understand themselves in their workplace or in their sports team or in their community groups how to respond to someone who needs a bit of support or who might be in distress and in some cases of course that will be escalation that will be you know helping them or supporting them to talk to a a professional but in some cases that's just about giving them support right now or helping them you know access support somewhere else within their communities. I'm very nervous about like my little brothers and my cousins and young people and children in the, our communities. I look at the path that I had to the, the opportunities I get to be part of and I don't see it being as clear for them. And so I'm very worried about that. On the other side, I look at things like the youth climate strikes and the response to the mosque terror attacks where we had young Samoan Okirano Tulaya and, and other young people come together after the earthquakes uh, with the student volunteer army things. I, I know that my generation will continue to find ways to work through. We can make it easier though, and that's probably the bit that I'm, I'm most nervous about. We can make better choices. 
That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The details brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Blair Stagpool and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Josiah Tualamali'i and Laura Walters. Kia pai tōra.